0: All right, this episode of Enough About Me is brought to you by our great friends at Milton's. And Milton's, you'll be as comfortable in their store as you'll be in their clothes. Actually, you'll be as comfortable in their clothes as you'll be in their store. It doesn't really matter. Either way, you're going to be comfortable. I go to the one in Chestnut Hill Square in Chestnut Hill. Go to the one in the South Shore Plaza if you're there as well in Braintree. Uh, and again, I was saying earlier, if it's, you know, you want to go to these uh, holiday parties, Christmas parties, I call them Christmas parties, or any other parties where it's kind of business casual or maybe a little nicer. Uh, you go there. I go there. I got my Tommy Bahamas. I got my Vineyard Vines. I have my Vineyard Vines jacket on right now. I love going to Milton's. It is the best place to shop for anything, particularly clothes. If you're a dummy like me, they walk you through the experience. It is great. It's great. Can't recommend it enough. I am so happy they are the sponsor of Enough About Me. Milton's is the store for men. <laughs> Okay, we're back at it this week, it's not one of these naval games. We have Jack McCallum on, one of the great basketball writers, uh, really, of all time. He's at SI Forever. Uh, wrote Unfinished Business, a book I loved about the Celtics. Has a new book out right now on the Golden State Warriors. We talk a little bit about that, about Jerry West. We talk about the NBA today. We talk a lot about Larry Bird. If you're an 80s Celtics guy like I am growing up, this is a good podcast for you. One of the great basketball writers alive. Jack McCallum, a really good guy as well. friend of Jerry Callahan's even. Uh, joins Enough About Me. All right, so Jack McCallum joins me, the uh, author of the new book, Golden Days, uh, a look at the – which I just finished about two nights ago and goes through sort of the history of basketball, almost in California, and links Jerry West uh, from the Lakers to his role in the Warriors. I'm curious, do you like Jerry West personally?
1: Do I like him? Yeah. Yeah, I I sense – here's what I kind of like about him, not to get too psychoanalytical, but it kind of fascinates me that a 79-year-old guy who's sort of revered in the league who, you know, has a logo and all that kind of stuff has this track record, but still seems to be kind of searching for, (laughs) searching for something, uh, you know, kind of uh, a little bit uh, hesitant about his own accomplishments, kind of going back and forth on being very egotistical. And then the next moment, very, uh, you know, hesitant about what his legacy is. So, I sort of never met a character like that who has so much fame, but yet seems to be searching uh, for for something that I, I guess he'll never find. I kind of found that fascinating. I well, guess that doesn't answer the question of whether I like
0: him. Right. Well, I just I <laughs> find that I find that you know. So you know him. I don't. But I, I you know I, I I read his book. I've listened to him in interviews. I've watched him. I've seen him a couple of times in person. Uh, he seems like a difficult guy to approach, and he does seem. Sort of haunted and in, in, uh, sort of rooted in conspiracy. I mean, you even talk about the Manson murders in the book with Jerry West. I mean, he just it just seems like there's a lot going on there, and he could and come across as kind of dinkish, I think, or aloof at times, or mostly. There's no
1: question. The funny thing is, is that every time I interview for the book, I mean, we did like half a dozen interviews and a long session in his house. I'd start explaining what the concept of the book was, which is a little, you know, takes like a minute of explanation. And I'd get thirty seconds into it and it'd hear something about the explanation and he'd just start talking. So about something. So in many ways, he's not hard to talk to. He seems unapproachable sometimes if you put aloof, sometimes thinkish. But in other times he he will just begin talking. So when you're interviewing him, he's not hard to talk to because he keeps up with today's game. I mean, I think what I appreciate about him the most is that he's not one of these old guys that sits there going, well the way we did it in the 60s was all, you know, you know that kind of Oscar Roberts right. type of bitterness. Which is pretty good, it which
0: up, we, birds like that too. More I mean like West, which I which I think is pretty cool. Like Bird is not one of those guys either. Bird will say, you know, these guys today are just as good if not better.
1: Correct. And Bird even did that back then. I remember when you know, like when Len Bias died, I just remember talking to Bird and how really I mean, the last person in the world to sit around a room doing cocaine the night he draft drafted would be Larry Bird. Right. On the other hand, on the other hand, he seemed to know. Okay, he's a kid effed up. Uh, it's a tragedy. It's a horror. And I never heard, you know, as hard boiled as Bird was. As you said, he kind of seemed to accept new levels of the game, new generations of the game. And by and large, West, who's gone on eighty years old, that's why the guy has remained relevant in the league since 1960 i think
0: by and large we'll get to bird in a second because you wrote one of the books that when i was a kid like you know you wrote unfinished business for a kid like me growing up in boston in the 80s and that book came out I, I probably read the book 20 times so i'm definitely gonna get there but you said when you pitched west the idea for the book or talked to him you had sort of a minute pitch i guess so if people are listening right now driving around you know I i would recommend it i love the dream team i loved unfinished business i really enjoyed this book what is the 30 second pitch for this
1: it links. It's a look at two eras of the NBA. One of them lost in the early 70s. One of them current, uh, the the Golden State Warriors. It sort of links the comparison and contrast of those two eras through the prism of two teams and through the prism of one man, uh, Jerry West. How's that? Sir? that That's not bad. That's that that
0: that that about that about uh, is the length and width of it. I would say so. I would say. What, what I didn't realize uh, was. How big a role Wes played in this Warriors thing? For some reason, I thought it was more ceremonial. I don't know why.
1: Well, he played, as as some of your listeners may now know, he's gone. And the reason he's gone now is that his role, for various reasons valid and otherwise, started to diminish. In the early part of things, we forget how screwed up the Warriors were. They were a terrible franchise when they went after Wes. We didn't know what Curry was going to be. They had new owners. They had a new general manager. They went through coaches. West gave them, A, credibility, and B, in the early going, a couple of key decisions to keep Curry over Monta Ellis, uh, not to trade Clay Thompson for Kevin Love, which seemed like a deal that anybody would have made. So early on in the formation of this modern Warriors team, Gary was very, very, very instrumental. As time went on, You know, Bob Myers as a general manager got great. They hired Steve Kerr, who's turned out to be, you know, one of the best coaches in the game. Uh, And things started to roll without Jerry, who was not playing a day to day basis. And that's why they said they had to cut his compensation. And Jerry started negotiating with the Clippers. And he's now in largely that same role with the Clippers.
0: You know what's funny about the Warriors for me is is just growing up as a big basketball fan in the '80s and then the '90s and even all the way through until the whole uh, last group. They were always sort of a franchise without an identity. You know, they would they grabbed they grabbed a random championship. They had a couple of good years with Hardaway and Mullen, and, and they had but they were in Don Nelson. But until they really did what they've done the last few years, they were one of those franchises that you didn't really identify them with anything.
1: Absolutely, I mean, and when you went there. I mean, when I worked for Sports Illustrated, when I was covering the league full-time, I sort of almost never went there because we were, at the magazine, we're proudly a bunch of front-runners. You know, we covered.
0: Yeah, what's relevant. You had, yeah.
1: you had to be really, really, really good, you know, Celtics, Lakers, Bulls, Pistons, or really bad. And the Warriors were never quite, they were bad, but they weren't bad in an excruciating way. And when you went out there, the surprising thing was actually they had a lot of home Support that they had this fervent kind of home base, and when you talk to people how that existed, it was basically they were a a, a kind of a high IQ basketball fan who went to see the other team. You know, they didn't go to see, right? They're going to see,
0: yeah, they were going to see Larry Bird or Dr. J or right,
1: yeah, Larry's coming. Magic, they never expected to win the championship, they never had a big man that they thought could take them there, and it's almost not an accident, but it's. So much serendipity has been attached to their rise now. I mean, it's sort of incredible.
0: Well, they're the first, you know, dynasty, and they're a dynasty now, and I'm not counting Durant, but they're the first dynasty to get there sort of without a sure thing. I mean, you know, Kareem was a sure thing. Magic was a sure thing. Burb picked pick six, but after watching him that year, you knew he was a sure thing. Nobody doubted Jordan's greatness, even though he fell in number three. I mean, he was a player of the year. Uh, the, the the first ones to get there, with I'm saying with the Curry Thompson before Durant, to get there without a sure thing, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I I would compare compare them temperamentally or strategically. In fact, they're kind of polar opposite. A little bit like the Pistons that won two in a row, that you'd be hard to say there's an alpha player on that team. The Pistons, they kind of did it in diametrically opposed ways. The Pistons with this incredibly mean-tempered, right? you know, uh, defensive-oriented.
0: Although Isaiah, even by winning that, that first title, by the time they won that first title, Isaiah was a established superstar in the league.
1: Yeah, no question. And and he became, Curry became that, but if you look back, I mean, all you have to say about this team was that five or six years ago, there was an argument about whether to get rid of Steph Curry mm-hmm. or Monta Ellis. Right. That's all you have to say. That's right. what was going on with that team. So that's how little... They kind of believed in Steph Curry doing what he did. Never mind Clay Thompson being better, Draymond Green being better, Andre Iguodala getting kind of second life as a sixth man, and then getting and then getting Durant.
0: At, at what point? I mean, so you know, you've written uh, how many books now? Is it eight or nine? though? No, am I wrong? Uh,
1: that I that I uh, count. Yes, I count the... about, probably six that I count and uh, twelve altogether that I don't. Six I don't.
0: Count. What do you mean? What, what don't you count?
1: Well, so I'm. Okay, well, I don't know. Maybe some book you're not.
0: Maybe some book he got hosed on or something. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: Early on, I wrote a book. You know, I wrote a book a hundred years ago about uh, Chuck Bednarik when I was a kid, who was a uh, you know in my hometown. I wrote a book with uh, Rocky Aoki, the founder of Benny Hahn. I wrote a book with Shaq when he was a rookie. The Immortal Shaq attack with two cues. Is that, the, that just uh, end is, of it.
0: that's just a money grab or no?
1: No, no. They none of them were real. Oh. money grabs. I'm being, uh, I'm yeah. kind of being a facetious, but I always enjoyed
0: <laughs> right. doing
1: books because you had, you know, I did unfinished business half, well not half, but 10% because you'd get to the end of the season, Kirk, you'd have all this stuff in your notebook, there was no internet, you didn't tweet, there was no social media, Sure. unlike a newspaper I wrote once a week, maybe, and you'd have all this great stuff left over, that you didn't have a place to to put it, and that's kind of why I got,
0: you know, interested in books to a large extent. You know what's funny is, and I have a question about that in a second, but once in a while I actually use part of your book when I, when I reference, uh, sometimes even on the air, what's going on today versus social media. There's a part in Unfinished Business, and there's sort of this endless thing of with, with Bird and his back, and would he play, wouldn't he play? And I think it's Steve Bolpett and Jack McMullen, I think, were the beat writers for the Herald and the Globe at the time. And you talk about how they see on the eleven o'clock news that night that Bob Lobel said the birds are not gonna play with the team the next day. We lived in a world back then where you waited until the eleven o'clock news to find out if the biggest athlete in town was playing in a game which would be impossible today. You would know five minutes, you know, after you know, somebody would tweet it out, Wojnowski would tweet it out or somebody else and they'd be gone. Back then you actually had to wait. Sometimes you wake up the next morning you didn't know if he was gonna play that night.
1: With I mean, and this is in a town, not to uh, not Pat over patting Jackie and Steve, but this is Boston's in a town with the greatest, some of the greatest sports reporters in the world. I I went through that year without, I I knew Dave Gavitt. I mean, Dave Gavitt is a great guy. I went through that year almost when Dave, the only person wouldn't sit down with me for a gigantic full interview was Dave Gavitt, who was the general manager of the Boston Celtics in charge of kind of managing this weird Larry Bird, will he or will he not play? And, you know, Dave just didn't talk. And it was, like you said, you didn't know game to game, you'd kind of show up. I still do with Eddie Lacerda, the great uh, immortal Celtic trainer. And whenever I would see Eddie 25 years later, I would just look at him and go, Larry playing tonight? Larry going tonight? Right. <laughs> Eddie would go, I- I'll get back to you. i got to check on that.
0: <laughs> Well, you got them at a really, like, you know, people want sort of the storybook ending in books, but you got that Celtics team at a really interesting time in, in their franchise history. Bird was getting older. McHale was getting older. Parrish was getting older. They had a coach they had, they were now, they had played with. Uh, Gavitt was coming in. Red was sort of getting moved out. Reggie Lewis was in. Brian Shaw was in. There was a younger guy versus older guy. It was a team that was totally in transition, and there was a look at those guys, particularly Bird, McHale, and Parrish, and, that you never got anywhere else, but it was you know, and, and they got off to a great start that year and kind of faltered. But they, there was a really interesting time I think in that in that group's history.
1: I do remember, I do remember thinking that, and I remember in the summer, I I, I had this idea and I called up the. Oddly enough, I mean, besides Bird and McHale, I knew those guys to the extent that you know players. I had I knew Chris Ford pretty well. I had played high school basketball against Chris in mm-hmm. South Jersey, Not that we were on remotely the same level right so i remember calling up chris and saying i wanted to do this and chris gone oh jesus right <laughs> no. oh my god because i i loved chris and everything but chris played him pretty close to the best the way i got into the coaches was don casey if you recall you know one of the great one of the great characters of all time yeah don jennings who was a young assistant coach right and i remember thinking that it was this crossroads time that larry was probably more injured than we knew kevin already had trouble walking and it was going to be interesting to see if the team how much a team was going to turn it over to reggie and you mentioned you know d brown had come in and right away had an incident with his girlfriend early in the year so to a certain extent you know your material you know your material really helps you that's true shaw was in italy
0: that year right Yeah, right, right,
1: right. And, you know, there was a contract thing going on with him. I mean, Auerbach was obviously Bill Batty's new agent. You know, this incredible, like, almost a watershed year in turning it from the old Celtics to the new Celtics. There was debates about whether they were going to charter. Uh, You know, some other teams had started. Uh, Boston Garden was starting to piss some of the visitors off to the extent that there was – I can't remember whether it was a new – plan already but that was in the wind somewhere so it was it was a great time to plug in
0: how was uh how was bird to deal with
1: well bird was it was sort of what his dealings with me was a reflection of his season and that was he was checked out 50 percent of the time i mean you couldn't and don't talk to bird if he doesn't want to talk right because <laughs> it's not he wasn't around sometimes he wasn't around Around, and I remember these one or two road trips when you would get he well, seemed to be happier on the road and I just remember I got with this road trip with him I think it was in Phoenix and he was just unbelievable I mean he was the bird who lives in legend as just incredibly funny cynical off the cup off the cuff candid would say anything so I mean I was really fortunate to have realized he's playing or B when he's on the road and away from some of the things that he uh, faces in Boston. So he was every, everybody, er, everybody was great. I mean, McHale was McHale, I mean, you know, gave me the all time we're sitting on a bus in Portland and all of a sudden McHale goes, uh, man, I wonder who came up with that cement pond in the Beverly Hillbillies. I mean, that guy's a genius. I mean, who the hell thinks that stuff like that besides,
0: You know what's wild is if you're, I'd say, younger than early 30s, uh, you don't really know who Reggie Lewis is. You don't really remember him. And it's not a perfect comparison because he's not as good as this guy. But there are similarities, and they're sort of built the same way, and their shooting motion is almost the same, and they're better off the dribble. There are similarities offensively between Durant and Reggie Lewis. It's not a perfect comparison, but I do see some of it.
1: Reggie – I don't think no. You're right. Reggie had a kind of like Durant. He wasn't as big, but he's got a had a kind of economy of motion, and he had this almost you know he was a non a pre social media personality. So in effect, Reggie, well you guys knew him more from Northeastern, but in effect, he didn't have a personality. And when I looked at him at first, average size for for the NBA, didn't have a personality. This economy of motion—I never realized, honestly, until you look back—how good that guy was. Oh,
0: he was going to be a Hall of Famer, I think, for sure.
1: Hall of Famer. He—he he was going to be. He got off his shot. He was a smart player, um, and and like I said, there was no there was no bullshit in his game. Right. Uh, I keep going back to this economy, the same way as as Durant, and boy, he goes down tragically as one of the most. Uh, certainly after Bias, because Bias never got any chance. But yeah, Certainly one of the most tragically underappreciated guys in the, in the history of the franchise and maybe the NBA in general.
0: Well, they played those two series back-to-back with Indiana in the playoffs and went head-to-head, and Reggie Lewis was a better player than Reggie Miller. I mean, he, he was a better all-around basketball player. Obviously, Miller had a long career, he was a Hall of Famer, but, but Lewis was a better player.
1: Uh, absolutely. I mean, back then, he didn't have Reggie's you know big moments. No, mean, no, no, no. Yeah, when Reggie Lewis, Lewis I'm talking about, when he he was also in that position of trying to figure out when to be deferential. I mean, if you looked at Bird that season, Bird was still pretty damn good.
0: Oh, yeah. When he played, Kendall yeah. was
1: good, yeah. So you're looking at a situation, I mean, the DJ was gone, but you're looking at a situation where Reggie went out there some games and couldn't figure out whether he was number one, number two, or number three. And sometimes, according to Robert, you know, he could have been number four. So that's a tough position. And I think Reggie, you know, Larry would have retired, and Reggie would have eased pretty much into that alpha male position on the Celtics, and he would have had some
0: career. Can you even describe the difference in level of access in players back then or even 10 years before that versus today? If you're going to try and set out to write a book, and obviously you wrote a book looking inside, but there's more from a front office perspective, really, could you even possibly write a book like that today?
1: No, I mean, the last time I wrote this book on the sun, yeah. uh, you know, stay with the sun, but, I mean, but that was just such a perfect storm of the Antony, Antony's the greatest guy, and he didn't care. They had a great PR person. They uh, Phoenix is in a market that's unlike New York or Boston or Los Angeles, where you could get in there and every day was not a, a battle. No, I mean... The difference, I think, Kirk, is that, well, there's many differences, but when I was writing the Celtics book and those guys back in the 80s and 90s, they were still plugged into this idea that you kind of had to sell the NBA, that Larry came in at a time when he understood, Magic and Michael, that, you know, we have to play the game here. We're part of this whole grand circle. And the media, although we hate them, we hate their answers sometimes, they figure in the circle somewhere. These guys come into a different place. The NBA's plush in cash, uh, and the idea, trying to convey to a young player that, well, you know, it would be nice if you cooperated with the beat writer from right. the Daily Canyon. Right, right. When, when you have you have your own website, you have your own uh, yeah, social in, media. Platform.
0: Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat, yeah. What do you need, right? What yeah. do you need, uh, You're right, Bob whatever from the you paper.
1: Have, you have five million people. Right. You have five million people following you, and plus you have your representatives telling you you don't need them. I mean, you can still find your way. There's still some good reporting. There's different ways to tell stories, you know, on podcasts and everything like that. But uh, I was the only uh, the only advantage of being old. Uh, you know, Ryan would say the same thing probably mm-hmm. uh, was that we came along uh, when when the media was still part of the game and. I'm, you know, certainly very
0: thankful for that. What do you think of the media today in general? The way they cover the NBA, the way they cover sports—just not even like you know—I'm not talking about guys like me, talk show hoster or, or talking head guys on TV, but the beat guys. Do you find the beat guys are too player friendly? Do you find that they're they're not? Do you find they're any different? Do you think it's a problem or not? A lot of questions, I know.
1: Yeah, I think that, um, for example, that somebody that took my, the guys that followed me at SI, Lee Jenkinson and uh, primarily in Chris Ballard. I mean, the key, for example, for the NBA has always been, can you get to the main guys? Because you got a team, but you got – you only have 12 guys, and you only got two or three guys that mattered. You know, you had to get to Larry. <laughs> right. You had to get to Magic. You had to get to Mike. The guys that followed me, certainly at SI, do an unbelievable job at that. I mean, they can get to LeBron. Uh, they can get to Curry because those kind of unders guys sort of understand it. But I don't think the kind of depth that you can get by getting everybody the time that you need. The difference, I think, I'm going to take Draymond Green as an example of of the difference. Mm -hmm. Out in Golden State, I mean, they they cover this team. They have some really great reporters, uh, Tim Kawakami, Anthony Slater. You know, they're really terrific guys on the beach. But they don't do it the same way. If I would go to Draymond trying to build a story around quotes with Draymond, it doesn't work out as well. On the other hand, those guys get Draymond on their podcast, which is a different way of telling the story. Sure. A way that Draymond seems to understand. I mean, it's kind of like you guys with a radio interview. Mm -hmm. But Draymond can go on for an hour on a podcast and be very revelatory. Whereas the old day, and that's a different way to tell a story maybe than I used to. So I'm just going to bail out and say the ways that stories are told are completely different. Uh, I don't think it's exactly the same writing-wise. However, you can still get to the depth of a guy if he's going to cooperate in a new medium the way that he wants to cooperate. But he's not going to cooperate the way you want to cooperate by interviewing him and spending two or three days with him.
0: Is there any point when you're talking to Jerry West and he's not whining, but he's, you know, not complaining, but he's bitter about 1969, say for an example. Do you ever want to say to him, I mean, listen, buddy, you've been to 22 finals or whatever overall. You get all the money in the world, all the success in the world. Shut up. Like, okay, Don Nelson hit that shot. Life goes on.
1: <laughs> I was, I well, I mean, we had a couple conversations like that. And he sort of, at some level, West kind of, uh, you know, I, he kind of understands that. The only person that was interesting, the Pat Pat Riley, who who I got for the book, who's usually really, really, really elusive, but for some reason I got him in a a great mood talking about this. He was the only person that said to me, you know, uh, and he was on that team, by the way, as a reserve. You know, when Baylor retired, Baylor retired the day they began the uh, streak. The streak, yeah. Retirement, yeah. The retirement was a large reason they you know they kind of remade the team into a running team. We said Larry or I'm sorry, Larry Jerry and Elgin had to look at each other at some point and say, "You know, we weren't getting it done. <laughs> There's some there was some flaw here." We we for the listeners that don't know the the Celtics beat the Lakers 6 times in the 1960s in the finals. I'm trying to imagine if social media would have gone would have been around then. <laughs> And and West and Baylor would have been proclaimed the sports. I mean, Jerry would have ended up full time on the psychiatrist's couch right. instead of probably. Oh,
0: I think I think it's a really good point. I think in today's social media world, I think like one of those guys would get traded. Like they they would the media would basically force those guys to complain about each other or beat the front office down, and one of them would have been traded, no doubt in my mind.
1: That's probably true. I mean, you don't lose you don't lose to somebody six times and at least
0: without winning two of
1: those. Yeah, two of those years uh you know the the Lakers were clear favorites I mean you mentioned sixty nine that was I could have almost written a book about that sometimes i start I started writing about nineteen sixty nine and it's been obviously it's been written before, and certainly you guys in Boston know it mm-hmm. but this was just such a fascinating thing. I kept telling myself, wait a minute the book's it's not about nineteen sixty nine right right you're gonna have to cut off about fifteen of these pages uh that you that you just wrote, but just an amazing series. Celtics finish fourth in the East. Russell's 107 years old. I right, mean, he's man. done. Yeah, doesn't look like he's playing at all. And you know, also, and also,
0: go. also coaching the team
1: and coaching the team. Right. right, and then they go into a you know West is at the height of his powers, uh, and and they got Wilt, and they have Baylor. And it's a game seven, I mean, come on, man. I mean, this just did not add up to a Celtics victory, and they still
0: beat him it's funny you you, you reference it at one point in the book, I think it's earlier on is West is like looking at this photograph of Russell, and it's almost like Russell has loomed over his life like it's he's like this sort of massive figure in his life he's never never been able to shake still
1: He used the word, yeah, he used the word he was you know it was strange, he came out of nowhere, and he said to me i I remember seeing this picture of Bill Russell, and he was paused at mid court and he looked almost regal what he, that was the word he used for Russell I found that I, I couldn't get that uh, out of my head that, that description that a, a player would say that about and that's the kind of uh, that's the kind of spell that Russell had uh, during that era I mean the 61-62 season he averaged 22 points fewer than wilt and Oscar had his triple double season. Which we didn't replicate till, till Westbrook, and Bill Russell was the MVP.
0: Right, and we'll I mean, play that is right. We'll average more than forty eight minutes a game that year, I think. Right,
1: he averaged more than forty eight minutes, and he averaged fifty points and twenty six rebounds. And and Bill had averaged, uh, I think twenty. I I was surprised that Russell had that many points. I think he averaged 26, 27 points that year, mostly on put. You know, a lot of putbacks. He had a little short hook, and he did run the floor. I mean, Russell was an amazing, was an amazing athlete. Uh, one of the things I didn't put in the book, there was no way to really do it, was Gary West's son Ryan, because we were talking about Wilt and Russell together. Gary West's son Ryan dials up this thing that he had ready on YouTube of Bill Russell early in his career, getting a rebound, making a quick outlet pass. He went up the court in like five strides. And, and dunked the ball and he said, anybody who thinks Russell was an athletic, you know, is kind of out of his mind. And he showed this Russell just gallivanting up the court quicker than any big man uh, you know, that I've ever seen.
0: Do you think there's been has there, has there been a great Chamberlain book written yet?
1: Well there was a couple well he wrote his own, he would probably say that. <laughs> right. That's that's he the one that's
0: the one with all the women, right? The uh, yeah,
1: yeah, you know, it was called just like any other Seven foot black millionaire who lives next door was the uh subtitle. guy named Robert Cherry wrote a wrote a pretty good one on Wilt. Uh I think it was called Wilt Larger Than Life. Uh you know, that that was a uh that was a pretty good book. I think I,
0: I read one about the hundred point hundred point game like five or six years ago maybe that was too.
1: too. Gary Pomerantz wrote a book called Wilt nineteen sixty six night of the hundred point
0: game. I read that, yeah.
1: Yeah, and it was it was pretty good. It kind of focused on that uh on that game at Hershey. It's very hard. It's really hard to get at the essence of what a kind of larger-than-life character Wilt was and this dichotomy between him and Russell, which I almost felt that I've written about a thousand times, never mind how many times Bob Ryan has written about it, and how it kind of parallels the magic bird thing. I mean, in one way, in one way you can't almost overstate it, this battle. Between Wilt and Russell, and what they represented in the two different poles of the game, the way they played the game, the two franchises—it uh, really is remarkable. I'm glad that I was around to see some of it, at least as a kid, and to be around them a little bit as as a uh, as a journalist.
0: Well, I got to see Chuck Devitt play, so you know, it's, we're pretty much even on that one. Good, Good for you. <laughs> I think you know it's funny about this book, and, and like I said, I really enjoyed a lot golden days is it in a weird way, it, it's obviously about West and, and California and the Warriors and the Lakers, but in a way, and you talk about 69, 1969 and Bird and Magic, in a way it's sort of in an odd history of the league, in, in a way, you know, what I mean? because West pretty much goes through the entire history of the league. You kind of stop everywhere in this book.
1: Well, it's, it's very hard. Uh, it was a lot. It's very hard to trace the history of the league and not get into – you know, not get into the ball, not get into the Boston
0: Celtics, yeah, right. I
1: mean, they run, they run a lot through it. And, you know, even if you were trying not to, uh, you really have to because so much of West's career goes through the Celtics. And interestingly, and obviously to your listeners that know basketball, the only way, you know, what finally helped solve uh, the Lakers when they finally won was they hired a Celtic. You know they hired Bill Sharman right who's one of the lost uh, kind of characters in his legacy in the NBA uh, you know I mean Bill Sharman was a just an unbelievable coach so they tell Jerry West they're hiring an ex Celtic coach the team and then Bill says you know I want an assistant let's get Casey Jones right. <laughs>
0: who
1: who tortured you know who tortured defensively the uh, the Lakers uh, and, and that's kind of so they even come together on the moment of the Lakers greatness and I mean you can't it's hard to overstate how incredible winning 33 straight games was
0: oh, my you're
1: flying when you're flying commercial and some of you are in coach on a 7 a.m flight you know it's hard to overstate that you know and the moment of their greatness uh, that Charman and uh, and Casey Jones were uh front and center with it.
0: Well, how about the travel schedule you laid out earlier in the book with Baylor, you know, before they all stay at that hotel that they wound up, wind up not staying and go to another hotel. What was it was like 11 games and 12 nights, and they're all over the country. It's, it was insane back then.
1: That was unlike anything I've seen. I mean, I mean, it was wild all
0: over the country, too.
1: Yeah, it was sort of like, you know, they were selling the the game back then. It was the Minneapolis Lakers, and they played a game in – they. I can't remember. Yeah, I forget. Yeah. Games, thirteen days, and only half of them were in NBA cities. Right. You know, there were some. They played a game in Seattle. This is before there was a Seattle Superdome because Ellington went to college there, and then they were flying all the way to West Virginia to play this game because Hot Rod Hundley uh, went to college at uh, obviously at, at West Virginia West. Virginia, yeah. West. yeah. So uh, you know they had been barred from staying at the hotel. I mean, it, they were they were barred, the league was a Barnes league and basketball was a barn storming, even Auerbach did it. You know, I mean, Auerbach took the Celtics all over the place and he took himself all over the world. And there just seemed to be this, maybe it was the, glo- you know, the paradigm of the Globetrotters that in order to sell this game, we're going to have to get our asses all over the place. And it's very interesting, you know, baseball as, as good, a great a hold as it had on our culture, never did that. Know, they didn't travel kind of all over the place. Oh,
0: the guys with did, Barnstorm so. guys with Barnstorm in the off season, like way, way, way back, you know, Ruth and Gehrig and those guys in the off season at so, Barnstorm, yeah. But but
1: they they went into these awesome all star games in Japan and things like that. Right. Or they played the the, or they
0: played did. the Negro Leagues in, in like exhibition games.
1: Right. The NBA did it uh you know, the NBA Barnstorm during the season. Right. You know? <laughs>
0: it's crazy. But that
1: was an index of how low low they were on the uh, on the American wood culture.
0: I'll, I'll, I'll let you go with a couple more. One one last one is, and I'm, I know you're more than a curious observer of this, what do you think the future is of Sports Illustrated, the physical magazine?
1: Oh, you're asking me a tough one. I mean, if I think, here's what I think looking at Sports Illustrated, and I just did a story for him this week, by the way. I did a story on it, with Shaq, 25 years later. So pick up your copy and Absolutely, sure. Sports Illustrated, you know, here's what I find looking at it from the outside, and I'm not just making stuff. When I look at the stories that are in there when Verducci writes and Lee Jenkins writes, uh, you know, and somebody has a great football story and Russian writes a back page or Michael Rosenberg, I still say, wow, an amazing magazine. I'm so happy I worked there. The brand really still means something, not to sound like a marketer. However, obviously the physical magazine is probably, I think it will continue to exist. I think it will, they will find a buyer that understands kind of its importance in American culture will keep it going, but obviously it's influence on general in the culture kind of mirrors. I think everything, I mean, I think the Boston globe used to have an unbelievable hold on. I remember when I started working, it was like, wow, would you rather work at sports illustrated or this unbelievable sports section of the Boston globe, you know, with, with Ryan and, and Lee Montville and, Jackie and all these people, uh, you know, Will McDonough.
0: Sure, and I think I think even I think even the Herald. Like I know with, for Jerry back then, leaving the Herald for SI was a tough call.
1: Oh, absolutely. You read, you know, Charlie and and uh, and Jerry Callahan. I mean, it was it was really unbelievable the hold that the printed word. I worked at Sports Illustrated when it, it a national magazine award. I mean, it was one of the it was as good as the New Yorker for what it did. That's not going to exist anymore. The print. The print hold is not going to exist. I just think the SI brand hopefully still retains its relevance uh, and continues to exist in some form. Although obviously it's going to be smaller than it was, but I tell you, I'm still you know lucky that I worked there because I mean I, I would be still writing wrestling, uh, high school wrestling at the Bethlehem Globe Times, and I somehow made it there and. That, that really made everything for me. So I'm, I'm thankful I got there uh, during the time when print is really, really, really relevant.
0: So what's the next book? What do, what do we got? What are you working on?
1: I'm working on a trashy base novel under an anonymous name.
0: <laughs> about time. Good. Finally. <laughs> probably, finally.
1: Probably what I should do. Kirk. I, I'm still uh, thinking about it.
0: All right. Good. Excellent. The book is Golden Days, Jack McCallum. Uh, definitely pick it up right now you can get anywhere obviously a bookstore uh, people still go to those uh, Amazon all over the place he's on Twitter as well uh, Jack thanks so much we really enjoyed it and uh, good luck with that and we'll talk to you soon I hope
1: thanks for having me sir. all right
0: thanks a lot Jack